Hey there, and welcome to the Pseudo Show, brought to you by the Destination Linux Network. Today, we talk about tools to make system management easier, whether you're running a traditional IT organization or an agile DevOps shop. All that and more on this episode of the Pseudo Show. Hey there, welcome to the Pseudo Show, your home for all things enterprise open source. I'm Brandon, and joining me this episode is Eric, the IT guy, or as I still like to call him, the lab guy. How are you doing today, Eric? You know, lucky for you, that never caught on. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) But I'm doing well. We are coming out of release season here at Red Hat, working on RHEL 8.5 and the 9.0 beta, so I've been, uh, been spending a lot of time on the RHEL Presents live stream and trying to expand our, our presence in the community. So it's it's been kind of crazy. So I'm, I'm very appreciative that Brandon kind of stepped up and, uh, and kind of took the reins on this episode so I can focus on a few other things. But how about you, Brandon? How's things? Well, it's been a busy, busy, busy time. So, and obviously we flipped the intro, but we got to mix it up every once in a while. I thought that was a lot of fun. Not as easy as it sounds, huh? Yeah, not at all. Yeah, at least uh, I think I only got that in one or two takes. So I think uh, one up on you. Anyway. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I let you take the captain's chair for one episode and you're, you're already rubbing it in my face. I, I see how things are. Yeah, that, that's the way we go. Today's episode is brought to you by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and business organizations to store, share, and sync sensitive data. You can go to bitwarden.com DLN to check out this amazing open source password manager. Bitwarden works across your devices from mobile, desktop, browser plugins, and even the command line. We're all big fans of Bitwarden. One of those reasons is trust. So how does Bitwarden prove they can be trusted? Not only is Bitwarden open source, they have their code regularly audited by security experts. If you want to make the smart move like many awesome people in the community, then check out bitwarden.com slash DLN and get started for free. If you're like me, though, you'll want to show your appreciation by signing up for the premium edition, especially when the premium edition only starts at $10 per year. That's right, $10 per year. Thank you to Bitwarden for being a sponsor of the pseudo show and the entire Destination Linux network. This show would not be possible without the support of our friends over at DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. You can get started on DigitalOcean for free with a $100 credit by going to do.co slash DLN. DigitalOcean is investing heavily into their marketplace offerings for their app platform. The app platform is the easiest way to build, deploy, and scale your apps quickly with their fully managed solution. They handle the infrastructure. You worry about writing the code. Now, DigitalOcean offers up to three static sites for free. In a world where your online presence is as as much a part of your identity as it's almost essential to have a website for yourself, your business, or your community. Now, you can do that at no charge on the DigitalOcean app platform. You can create your own website using a static site generator like Hugo or Jekyll, and even bring your own domain name for free. Need more sites or want support for additional languages like Node or Ruby? Not a problem. You can get the App Platform Basic Plan for just $5 a month. Not entirely convinced? Then try their service for yourself by going to do.co slash DLN. You can create an account and receive a $100 credit good for two months. And thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Pseudo Show. Yeah, today 
I want to explore a lot of open source alternatives into some really common IT tools. But you know, before we dive into that topic, Eric, you know, right at this top of the at the intro, you mentioned you're working on the Rel 8.5 release, Rel 9 beta. How about we talk about that a little before uh, we uh, dive into the main topic today? What's so special about Rel 8.5 other than uh, the five? <laughs> Yeah, we tended to shy away from this, but uh, I, I found myself getting to engage with the community, and and in fact, some of the Rel Presents audience are also fans of this show. So it's it's always funny when I show up on video and people are like, "Holy crap, that's Eric!" <laughs> in fact, I think Alex, one of our biggest fans, I think one of our most frequent listeners, is uh, he was shocked to hear my last name and and see my face as opposed to just my voice over over the podcast. So it's it's been fun doing both. So you know, Brandon and I kind of talked about this a little bit, and we, we've shied away from talking about Red Hat specific things on the show up till now. But we'll give it a try. I'll I'll share my thoughts and get Brandon's take on it as well. And if if you like the segment, let us know. If you're like, no, I'm just I'm in it for just the IT stuff, don't care about Red Hat, let us know that too. Send all of your hate mail to Brandon at pseudo.show. <laughs> no, you just had to get that in. Just I had did, to get I did. that in, Eric. <laughs> I totally did. So RHEL 8.5 is the fifth iteration on a promise that Red Hat has made to have regular release cadences. Beforehand, lifecycle could be anywhere from major releases every seven to fifteen years. I think Rel six was was about twelve to fifteen, and minor versions once, maybe twice a year, just kind of whenever whenever engineering thought. Fifteen years sounds a little long, Eric. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's still in extended support, so I I think when all said and done, it's about. I mean the. Well, between minor major releases like five to six, I think was three and a half years, and then RHEL six to seven was, f- I think it was almost four. No, no, it was about three and a half. There, major versions were a lot long, a lot yeah, farther apart than seven that. to eight was like four years. It was a huge, huge gap. It's like eight to nine now. It's looking like it's going to be three years, which is. Very much aligned to what was announced in 2019. Yep. So with the release of RHEL 8, we went to three-year major releases and six-month minor releases and fairly predictable release dates. We haven't announced specific dates for RHEL 8.5, and at the time of this recording, should be any day now. If you listen to this on the day of release, start checking the Red Hat Twitter feed because it should be released any day now. That helps a lot with having being able to, to plan for hardware refreshes, operating system refreshes, that helps with planning for major outages, patch windows, that kind of thing, because you know that every six months, plus or minus about a week, maybe two, if if there's a big kernel blocking bug that, that pops up last minute, it really helps make things more predictable, both for engineering and for systems engineers. So 8.5 is, is the fifth iteration of the promise on minor releases. And then on November 3rd, we released RHEL 9.0 beta, which is going to be the major version of, of Focus for the next three years or so. And that'll be released usually a few weeks after Summit. Summit usually falls towards the end of April. And then about mid-May or so, we do a lot of product launches. So plenty of time for folks to, to catch up on, on Summit sessions and, and see what's coming before the, the code actually drops. So, you know, stay tuned for for more on 9.0. But if you have a home lab, if you like to tinker, now's the time to play with with RHEL because in addition to some of the new features that have dropped, we've also been focused on 
changing the user experience. So early in 2021, we released changes to the developer program. We released developer for teams, which makes it easier for non-production systems, for home developers, for hobbyists to use RHEL everywhere. That was something that was missing when I was a systems administrator, was I can't just go and download RHEL and use it at, in my home lab without paying for a full-blown subscription. Those problems have been addressed. And now here we are in November, after a lot of the developer program changes, now we've made similar changes to the beta program. So if you have a developer subscription, you get the beta releases now. It's, it's not a different SKU. It's not a different sign-up sheet. You don't have to go and, and request access. If you have a developer subscription or if you have a, a paid-for subscription through your, your company or that kind of thing, it doesn't matter where you are. You can sign up, download the beta ISOs, install it, play with it. I would, one word of caution though, they are beta releases, so please don't run them in production. And I think personally, a better title for what these are is probably release candidate. Because with this release of, of 9.0 beta, there's not an easy way to transition from the beta to the general available release this spring. It's not just a switch that you can flip. That's, that's coming. I don't know if it'll be in the next release or, or a year from now, but eventually we're hoping to be able to, hey, I installed all of these applications under the beta, and now I flip a switch, and now it's going to get production packages. So it's, it's more of a release candidate. So if you've got a spare piece of hardware, if you've got virtual machines, or if you're out on, say, the AWS Marketplace or, or something, you can just install it, play with it, try it out, and then blow it away when you're done. Because it's, it's more of a release candidate than a true like pre-release. So this is really exciting. I mean, RHEL being on a more predictable cadence, I think for me, you know, someone coming from an operations background, that's a big deal. I mean, especially, you know, if I can then predict, like, oh, I'm going to use RHEL, I can easier to plan to my upgrades. Like if I still have a ton of RHEL 7, I can plan the migration to 9 now. Mm -hmm. For those that are not going to 8, other than the cool, fun things of pulling together the, a release, like what, what's got you really excited about RHEL, about RHEL 8.5 or RHEL 9? What's got you really excited? What, what feature is uh, really putting a smile on your face? Yeah. So the web console is just an incredible tool. It's based on upstream cockpit. So if, if you've used cockpit, you know just how amazing it is. It was initially marketed towards or geared towards new administrators. But admittedly, as someone who's been a systems administrator for about 10 years, I like it because it provides a lot of the visual aspects for administering a system from being able to see exactly how your disk is laid out to being able to look uh, from a high level at how are my NICs responding? How are they performing? What is their configuration? What firewall ports do I have open? So Web Console has been getting a lot of love in this release. There's additional metrics and graphs available from a performance standpoint. And in fact, the performance copilot suite of tools has gotten a lot of attention. And in fact, you can now use your web UI to kind of collect up to a thousand nodes worth of performance data. So it's being built into the operating system. You can you can tie into Grafana for graphing. Now you can track the performance of up to a thousand systems instead of relying on a third party system, something like a Nagios or an OpenNMS. So now those tools are built in and native to the operating system. Also on the web UI front is Image Builder. If you're doing 
kind of blessed or golden images, you want to be able to just send out an ISO or a VMDK or, or a QCOW2 file uh, to a developer to be able to use as a sandbox or as a development space. It's getting additional tooling, including customized file systems. So up until 8.5, you could only deploy a virtual machine with, with the slash, with slash or root file system. Not slash root, two different things, but the, with the root file system was the only option. Now you can actually customize it, which helps with security compliance. Because a lot of security certifications require your systems to have like your log directory separate from your application directory, which is separate from your home user directory. So now you can build that into your image builder images. Also on the image builder web UI front is bare metal support. So before image builder was targeted towards, say, a cloud use case or a virtual machine use case with images support for OpenStack, LibVirt, VMware, now bare metal is included. It basically spits out an ISO with a pre-populated kickstart file. So now you can take an image builder image with all the packages, all the users, all the SSH keys pre-populated. You just stick the ISO onto a USB key, put the USB key in your hardware, run through the install like you normally would, and it gets all of that content. Eric, on that, can I take that and put it into my Pixie environment if I wanted to? Yeah, that would be an excellent use case for this, is just boot your hardware using Pixie environment, point it to your, your image builder created ISO, now you've got an automated way to set up not just one piece of hardware, but conceivably up to an entire data center's worth, depending on your Pixie environment. And this uh, actually is kind of a topic kind of ties into what we're going to talk about in today's episode. I mean, the web administration inter interface for RHEL, you know, upstream cockpit, has been such a fantastic, like I remember when we first released it, I think it was one of the minor releases of RHEL 7, just Game changer right away. I mean, oh, huge! Being able to just hand uh, someone log into a Linux machine, but maybe they're a Windows administrator, maybe not completely familiar with Linux, but maybe they have enough familiarity to go into Cockpit, restart a service. What I also love about Cockpit is how extensible it is. I mean, it's I I've been playing with it in uh, with uh, Fedora forever. And there's some fantastic extensions to Cockpit that are getting packaged in Fedora that are obviously not getting packaged for RHEL, but like some of the plugins that like 45 drives built for like handling NFS exports, not, not mounting, but actually creating NFS exports or Samba shares, being able to browse the file system. And like, it's just such a great extensible web interface. It's easy to use. I think it's the best web administration tool out there, period. Well, and Cockpit Upstream and the web UI in RHEL are continuing to get attention. Like here in my home lab, you mentioned Fedora and Cockpit. Here in my home lab, if it's not in an Ansible playbook yet, I'm pretty much just using, just using the, the web UI to manage both containers and virtual machines. Like the virtual machine interface for, for Cockpit just keeps getting better and better and better to the point where it's almost... It's almost at parity with using the command line. I can clone and import and start and stop and access the console for all of my virtual machines from, from the web UI. It is so amazing to, to manage my, my home lab, which is constantly getting blown up and rebuilt and redeployed. It's amazing to have that, have that ability to just go into the web UI and click, 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 and now I've got a virtual machine that's getting deployed. 
Oh, what's really cool, at least on Fedora, I'm sure it will be coming in RHEL, but I can uh, now attach uh, PCI devices yep. onto a VM. Yeah, I saw that in Fedora. I haven't seen it hit the roadmap for, for the web UI for RHEL yet, but I cannot wait to try this out. I've got a, like a one gig video card in my server that is just begging for me to, uh, to add to a virtual machine so I can, I can play with like a virtual desktop and use it as a jump system. I mean, it just it keeps getting better and better. I cannot say enough good things about Cockpit. Eric, is there anything else like, you think the listeners may be interested in outside of for RHEL 8.5 that, or RHEL 9 beta even that you think the listeners may be interested in? So I can think of two, two things to kind of wrap up the segment. The first is that between RHEL 8.5 and RHEL 9.0 beta, there's not much different in, in the bits themselves. A lot of the package versions are the same. A lot of the features are going to be the same. So if, if you start a deployment to RHEL 8 and it's not your primary operating system in your environment, consider moving to RHEL 9 because it's not that big of a lift. The older that RHEL 8 gets, the more distance there's going to be between package versions and that kind of thing. And RHEL 9 gets you onto the development lifecycle of Fedora to send to a stream to RHEL that gives you 10 years of production support for your operating system. So, I mean, sooner is, is better than later, I think, with this new development paradigm that Red Hat's been using. The second thing I would say is another area that we've really been focusing on, really been expanding, is system roles. If you haven't played with system roles, try them out. They are, are so cool. System roles are basically a detailed Ansible playbook that sets up some sane defaults that you can then deploy across all of your environment. So with RHEL 8.5, there is a VPN role, so you can configure VPN connections on all of your servers. There's uh, NTP, so time sync. There's system roles for things like Microsoft SQL Server on RHEL. And every release, we're adding more and more system roles. So eventually, <laughs> you could configure your entire infrastructure just by defining your system roles, putting them into an Ansible playbook, and hitting go. And that is by no means an exaggeration. I mean, that is the direction that things are going. It's not replacing the systems administrator, but to use Brandon's term, it's systems administrators in the next generation of technology are going to be more like automation developers, automation engineers. If I can just click a button and I have this playbook that goes out and make sure that I have all of my systems running, that they all have certain firewall rules in place, that they all have certain accounts that exist, and I just go in and, and fix any any deviations, that frees up so much time to go in and actually learn new things, deploy new automation profiles instead of, oh, look, this disk is full. I want to spend the next half an hour cleaning out six-year-old log files. I mean, we can focus on much more value-added work. So system roles, Ansible, web UIs, it's not designed to replace a systems administrator. And I think that I think that's just shown more and more in the types of automation and optimization that that is going into things like Fedora, CentOS Stream, and now RHEL. And it's just, it's something we're continuing to see in 8.5, 9.0 beta. So here in six months, we'll, we'll have to chat again and, and talk about 9.0 GA. Uh, it'll be RHEL 8.6 at that time as well. So we'll actually have multiple major versions in full support at the same time. It'll be, it'll be interesting, but it, it's definitely worth it. Yeah, I don't think there's been uh, two RHEL versions in quite some time that have been in production support phase one. I think the last time was RHEL 6 and 7. Yeah, I think so. I think 7 and 8 were far enough apart that uh, 
RHEL 7 had already dropped into maintenance mode before RHEL 8 was released. That's great, Eric. I mean, I'm really looking forward to seeing RHEL 9. I mean, I've already started kicking the tires on it. And uh, I mean, for me, it's Fedora 34, just uh, getting that little bit more polish. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and now we've got Fedora 35, and we've got RHEL 8. 8.5 and RHEL 9.0 beta. I mean, there's so much going on. CentOS Stream 9. I mean, there's just so many cool things to, to play with and work on. But in fact, in the show notes, we'll, we'll add a link to RHEL Presents episode 24, where I sit down with three of my technical marketing manager buddies and we chat about RHEL 8.5. We even do a, a walkthrough of system roles. That way we, we go a little bit more in depth into all the features and that kind of thing than we did just kind of doing an overview here. But We'll include a link to that so you can go in and, and see uh, see what I've been up to, see, see why I've been so quiet on on uh, in our matrix room the last few weeks. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Eric. I, I appreciate you talking about that. I'm glad we were able to squeeze in a little talk about RHEL 8.5 and RHEL 9. But, you know, I want to get back to, to the main topic at hand. I mean, we've been kind of teeing up for this on and off for the since the last year since we launched the show <laughs> probably but i i've been wanting to talk more about data center tooling i mean like hey, this is stuff that you can go run on rel <laughs> there you go so, <laughs> so with these types of tools that i want to talk about i mean i this is there are two very specific requirements that i have especially for an open source project since we're talking about open source tools for managing your data center or private cloud or even how this even applies to public cloud or heck that even applies to public cloud <laughs> so the first is pretty obvious i mean i just check to see if the project's being maintained like i don't want to deploy something and then that's two years old it hasn't been touched in you know at least two years i want to make sure like the developer is is continuing to be involved in the project and also with their governances. If I can't contribute back to it, I don't want to, I don't want to deploy it. And then second, how well documented is the API? And Brandon, why do you care about the API? Why do you care about the API, Brandon? Why, why do I care about it? Mostly why <laughs> do I care about it? Yeah, you, know, you might be asking it, why do I care about the API? It is purely for automation, right? It is all about automation. I mean, Eric brought it up in the REL segment. I mean, I truly do believe that the next gen system administrator is an automation engineer or developer like you are working on improving automation and improving the new job of a system administrator is to develop automation to get rid of those repetitive tasks i dare you to change my mind on that <laughs> so yeah, there are obviously some great industry leaders out there have great products in each of these areas some are hosted for on-premise, and others are straight-up SaaS solutions, or they have both models available. But this audience, the pseudo-show audience, is likely looking for open-source alternatives that they can implement for their clients or host themselves if their company is looking for not relying on SaaS, or they have data sovereignty concerns. like They just don't want company data in someone else's, some other company's database. <laughs> So you know, we've mentioned these in the past. Now, Eric, you've worked in this space. You know, what, what are the, these solutions? Like we've talked about it before. Excel spreadsheets. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> There's nothing more frustrating than your entire data center hinging on whether or not the last systems administrator updated the IP address tracking sheet the last time he was in the data center. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're laughing, but I've literally worked at companies that have had thousands of lines of Excel spreadsheets, and that's how you track your assets, that's how you track your, your network addressing. I mean, it's, it's awful. So there's, there's been developers. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh because it's true, but... <laughs> um, Excel spreadsheet as a CMDB. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there have been developers who have felt our pain, and they've written tools. And one of those tools, uh, like Brandon just said, is the CMDB, and that's Content Management Database. Another good alternative to your Excel spreadsheet is an IPAM. It is an IP address management system. This helps you track IP addresses, VLANs, and so much more. I'm trying to think if there's any others. There's some higher focus. Of course, asset management stuff as well, right? Right. Which ties into CMDB and stuff like that. You know, it's, yeah. Yeah, I don't miss the days of tracking hardware and retirement dates and warranty information. I don't miss any of that. So it's, it's nice that there's tools out there that you could basically scan an asset tag and track all of that right from one place. And depending on the type of tool you're using, some of them allow you to take pictures and that way you can track exactly what rack and what row. I mean, it can. some of these get so specific that you can look for a 2U server and know exactly what lines in the rack it's taking up. So is it like 41 and 42 or what switch port is it plugged into? I mean, the more, the more information you give these tools, the easier it becomes to manage your data center. Yeah, it, like one of the things that also you know falls into this category of data center management is actually it's just straight up called a data center infrastructure management tool. <laughs> you know, sometimes we in technology just <laughs> don't even bother with creative names. It's just like this is what it is, and this is what we'll call it, or data center infrastructure management, whatever you want to call it. But like, <laughs> but like that's what it's designed for, right? It's designed. It's like sometimes it mix intermixes with IPAM uh, with an IPAM solution. But like basically, the whole idea is, is like I have a data center, I have racks of gear, and I need to know exactly where that asset is. I need to know the yeah, like you said, the location in the rack, what switch port is it in, even where it's plugged in. Like, is it plugged into two PDUs? Right. And what P is that PDU and which PDU is attached to the backup power, right? So, or is it attached to backup power? So, you know, if that, if that, at least I hope it is attached to backup power. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, no, you always, you always plug one server in, into the same power source. That way, if the power source goes down, then, then the whole server goes down. I mean, isn't that how you do it? I thought maybe that you do that somewhere. <laughs> I don't know where. Probably when I worked with the government. <laughs> So I, I lean heavily on my experience as a systems administrator. I can remember some of my first experiences with tools like this. It was amazing because I worked for a company that literally had data centers in just about every time zone in the continental U.S. And so there's no way that based out of Kansas City, Missouri, that that company was going to pay to fly me out to a remote data center in the middle of Oregon. It's not financially feasible. So outside of a home office, home is in corporate home office not my home office here, but outside of the corporate headquarters data center, a lot of times those the remote footprint would be in like a co-located data center or something. 
one of one of the greatest memories I have of where these tools come into play. I'm pretty sure it was Remedy had a lot of this information. It was kept well up to date. If a server had gone down and I needed it manually power cycled, I just I couldn't get connectivity into it. I couldn't hit the ILO. Whatever the case was, I could not talk to the server and I need someone to physically go get eyes on this box and tell me what's going on. It was so nice to just take, it was great to take an asset tag and a location and open a ticket with our co-location data center and say, hey, this server screwed up. Can you hook a crash cart to it and tell me what, what's going on? What do you see? Send me, take a picture of the screen and email that back to me. And to be able to have those conversations from two or three time zones away and know with full confidence that I'm sending this person to the right place. Because, I mean, co-located data centers are usually staffed by like part-timers who are in college. And it's just like, I mean, for me, that would be intimidating to go to a multi-million dollar company's server that had crashed and be the one to, to push the power button. It's like, I really don't want to lose my job over this. So you being our, our project guru and the one who has shown me dozens of projects, I am absolutely certain that you would have not only an open source alternative to something like Remedy, but probably even something that's more feature complete. So lay it on us, Brandon. What uh, what have you found? So I mean, Remedy, I I tried to replace that when I was at Novell 15 years ago. It's not easy. <laughs> it no, was it not. was great. <laughs> the thing is, I was Remedy. As much as people rag on Remedy, it is a really good tool. I mean, it, it does a really good job of what it does. It is a fantastic CMDB. You know, and CMDBs. Typically also include that ticket management. That's the way people always think of Remedy. It's a ticket system, but it does so much more. So as part of this, I evaluated about 10 solutions to manage IT assets. You know, Of course you did. I played with like three of them. <laughs> but I'm going to highlight only four because I think they're the only ones that, that could, like if you wanted to, you could stitch them together and make it and make it into a robust solution that could replace a remedy, replace like a SaaS solution that you're using for CMDB or ticketing. And so purely based on the current development activity and the robustness of the APIs. So in terms of asset management, we really didn't get into asset management. All asset management is, is what is the asset? When does it retire? Who owns it or who is in possession of it? Or where is it at? So the first one I found was uh, just Snipe It. And that's snipeitapp.com. It's open source. It's been pretty popular, actually, among like uh, open source uh, podcasts. And even a few podcasts have mentioned it. They're not even in, a, in this space. And it, it's a great asset management tool. And you can use it outside of IT. It is designed for IT, but you can use it for other solutions, other use cases. So Snipe It really appealed to me. The first thing that I noticed, if you go out to their website, I found it highly ironic that they had a cloud-hosted solution. I kind of laughed. I'm thinking, I, you, I have a cloud solution to now manage my physical database or my, my physical data center. But they do allow you to self-host it, and it does support running on a, on a Linux uh, web server. But one of the things that I liked the most, and I, I, I looked into some of their feature videos and that kind of thing around, and something I wish I had, because back in the day, it was, it was a BlackBerry, it was taking, taking pictures of, of your, your laptop screen and that kind of thing, was the mobile-friendly version. The fact that I can take my phone into the data center, 
and have access to all of their content, have access to their really beautiful UI. And it's very, very simple. It's even on the web, even on a full-blown web browser, it's very simple, very minimalistic. You know, it's it's not like they're trying to reinvent the wheel when it comes to asset management. It's just in the back end, it's just a bunch of rows of data, but it, it's presented in a way that's that's intuitive. It's easy to navigate through. And if I were managing a, a data center nowadays, mobile would definitely be one of the things I look for in that tool. And Snipe, it seems to have that in spades. Yeah, you need to be able to see it right from your Android phone or i or iPhone or tablet, right? It's very mobile friendly. That is definitely should be at the top of the list these days. I didn't actually take a look at that on any of these. It just did not compute with me on that. So I'm going to have to go back and look and maybe update the show notes if they're mobile friendly. So yeah, and thanks for looking at that, Eric. I did not even think about it. Hey, what can I say? I'm a recovering systems administrator, so not having all that information handy. I, I can remember the early days of mobile documents. Literally, I had a BlackBerry Pearl, had that stupid rollerball that always got always got <laughs> dust and crud in it. So you had to go and pull the rollerball out and like blow out the port that the ball sits in. And I can distinctly visualize myself walking down the rows with my BlackBerry Pearl and our co-located data center trying to figure out trying to zoom in on a on a spreadsheet with thousands of lines of of data so that pain point still resonates with me to this day so mobile support was one of the things i was looking for beyond just is it an active project is it open source but if i'm using this in my data center today what things would be important and that that mobile functionality was was hugely important yeah absolutely so i the next solution i took a look at was for cmdb like fully baked cmdb and that was uh, cmdbuild.org. This is a pure open source. This is purely self-hosted. I didn't see if there was like any like option for to buy hosting, you know, buy a hosted solution, buy a SaaS solution from someone. But what I really like about this, and like CMDBs typically have this built in, but a lot of the other open source CMDBs that I found didn't have this. And this is the that it had business workflow automation built in. So you could have approval flows or like automatic routing of tickets based off of business logic. So I thought that was really cool. What I also liked about it is it had IP address management built in. So like as you update assets inside of it, or it would automatically change IP addresses based on, on the IP address checked out and assigned to an asset. So I really, really like that. Oh, did you have a chance to take a quick snap at that, Eric? I didn't play with their tool, but they had a they had a really good online demo that I, I kind of skimmed through. One of the things that stood out here, especially if you're in a regulated industry, there's still a very heavy presence of ITIL, a lot of ITIL shops still out there. So their governance piece, like you were talking about some of the business logic that's built into the tool, one of the things that they were very proud to share was that their tool follows those ITIL practices. So it's one thing to have a tool like a spreadsheet and then have all these governance policies around it and then just expect people to know what those policies are and to follow them without going out on their own and getting an ITIL certification. 
but to have those policies built into the to the tool you're using makes it so much easier to make sure that those policies are being enforced because if you're honest about the information you're inputting in like when you purchased it or who owns it or things like that it's it's nice for those policies to be in place and even send you like notifications that hey this is this is coming up you may want to pay attention to something like this yeah Sticking on the CMDB track, and I threw this in mostly as an honorable mention. I mean, this is like probably the quintessential open source ticketing system out there, and that's OS Ticket. And I have a hosted solution. It can be morphed into become like an asset management solution. So that turns it into a CMDB. But I w- had to mention it. That's why there's four and not three. But I had to bring up OS Ticket because it is the quintessential solution. I mean, it's mobile friendly it's very extensible and i think it's uh you know still one of the gold standards for ticketing in open source solutions and os ticket has i've never been able to implement it in an organization no matter how hard i try cuz usually it's it's service now or it's remedy or it's one of these big name solutions but os ticket i found to be a much lighter solution some of the other ticketing systems and the fact that it is somewhat extensible to handle things like asset management. It it was a tool I wished I could have worked on as a systems administrator just because, like I said, it it is lighter. It it feels more intuitive. It doesn't try and do too much. But yet, like you said, it's kind of become a staple of open source organizations, ticketing systems. I didn't really play with that one much because I'd already kind of, I'd experienced it. I'd pitched it multiple times and just like, please, we can save money. Just send them, you know, 20 bucks a month or something. They'll be happy and we save money and I don't have to deal with service now. Yeah. (laughs) The last solution is a data center infrastructure management tool. So this is the type of tool that like, this is how you manage assets that are deployed in a data center. This is how you know where things are plugged in. And it also doubles as a IP address management solution. Typically, IP address management solutions are part of a CM, can be part of a CMDB, or they're part of a data center solution, or they're integrated into a DNS solution. In this case, I this is IPAM integrated into data center infrastructure management solution, and this is Netbox. So, anyone not familiar with Netbox, I have talked about it a couple times on the show. I might have blogged about it a couple times. I think it's one of the coolest tools out there for data center management. I kind of worry about Netbox because I just I don't know if it can scale. I mean, it's only the tool that is sponsored and helped developed by DigitalOcean. I mean, it, it's not like DigitalOcean yeah. can scale, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm of yeah. course being facetious because they are one of our sponsors and DigitalOcean ha- is, is very, very proud to be both a sponsor, a contributor, and a user of Netbox. I mean, it is an amazing tool. They actually created the project and now it is used by Equinix and by which they're building one of the largest bare metal clouds out there. It's used by, I think I've heard that it's used at a couple other big shops that I had to, that names elude me right now, but I've, I've heard, I've heard pretty big shops out there using it. I know some of my customers use it. There, there are no slouches in terms of scale. <laughs> this solution is so cool. I mean, what I love about it is the... So very early on in my career, I worked in Acolo. I did 
I worked at Novell, I worked at Ecolo, and I worked for, for a healthcare organization. And one of the things that they were, that Colo was very bad at was knowing where things are at. And yeah, granted, like most of the time, like if it's a Colo and like it's a, you know, there's like a gated area for like, or areas for customers that, that want that level of security. But like when it's out on the open floor, you should be tracking those customer assets. So you know where they're at. So that when I got that phone call to say, hey, need you to go power off and power on this server. We can't hit it or, or go recable something and need to know which port it's in. Whatever the case is, this solution can help you with that. Like This is one of the best data center infrastructure management solutions out there, bar none. I think it's also one of the best IP address management solutions out there, bar none. Not just because it does everything. Like, what's this IP address attached to? It's, oh, it's attached to this system, which is attached to this VLAN. So it, I know where everything is. Like, because I, an IP address, I and mean, people don't think of it like this IP address is an asset, whether we like it or not. I mean, we don't think of it as an asset because it's not something you pay for. But it is an asset that because it's attached to a real asset. And coming out of DigitalOcean, I would expect nothing less than what they've what they've built. I mean, you look at DigitalOcean itself and how much it's grown over the years. And if we haven't said this enough, I'll say it again. But I was a huge fanboy and user of DigitalOcean long before they ever were a sponsor of the show. So there, I said it again. It's not because they sponsor the show. It's because I love DigitalOcean. And so when Destination Linux Network came to us and said, hey, we'd like DigitalOcean wants to expand their contract and, and support the show. It's like, yes, please. I will gladly read their ads every every episode because just like their cloud-based UI, I can deploy VLANs out in, in their cloud. I can, I can assign certain ports to certain systems. I can do all these things. And having worked with the big three, the big four, really, from IBM to AWS to GCP and Azure, all of them have incredible amounts of, of power, but it's hard to find where it is because their UIs are so difficult to navigate. But DigitalOcean is arguably pretty close when it comes to database management, compute, storage, all of those things. But their UI is so much easier to follow. And I literally did a comparison of some of the, some of the big proprietary tools, things like Remedy, and looked at the UI of NetBox and just went, you can tell that this is something that was built by DigitalOcean because it is powerful, but it is simple. It's clean. I'm a bit of a snob when it comes to UIs. And so <laughs> NetBox stands up to that. It's not some grubby old spreadsheet put on a web page. I mean, it is, a, it is a very responsive UI. Well, a lot of the rack management or data center management solutions do look like that. And what I like about NetBox is it's clean. It's easy to use. I don't like, like to compare it to Remedy only because Remedy is a different tool, but it can do a lot of these things. But what I really like about NetBox is because as an API, it's easy to integrate with. It's easy to automate it. So I, if I am not, if I don't have like a CMDB and I want to cobble a bunch of tools together, it makes it really easy to make it happen, right? Like say I have a Snipeit and I put a new server into Snipeit, I can easily just you know, I plug in that server and then I can have snipe it, it put it into snipe it and then have some something populate netbox, like whether that's like some sort of script or some sort of integration that yet yeah, you custom build for snipe it, right? 
or even like at your typical CMDB tools. Like for say it's the CMD build. Have a CMD build plug into <laughs> Netbox. Because Netbox it actually is purpose built for for what it does. So yeah. And anyone who's listened to me long enough knows use the right tool for the right job. <laughs> so well and and to expand on what you were saying, I mean Put this in your mind and think about it for a minute and tell me if, you, if your brain doesn't explode. But Netbox actually has an Ansible module with it. What does that mean? What does that give me? That means that when I use Ansible to provision a system, I can even put things in there for Netbox to populate with. So using Ansible and variables and porting it to Netbox, you could deploy a system and actually have it registered into, registered may not be the right word, but have that information populated into Netbox. So now you can automate your asset management. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that, that is the whole reason why I picked these four. Like, how easy is it to automate? How easy it is to integrate? Is there an API or is there like some sort of SDK that you can build against? That was like, I don't care what scale you're at. I don't care if you're managing 20 assets, like 20 server assets or 20,000. Don't care. Automation and that level of integration is still important. Right. Because you don't know, only because there's still a person between the monitor at the front of the keyboard. There's still a person in front of the keyboard. People make mistakes. Automation doesn't. Unless the person who wrote the automation screwed it up. I was going to say, properly written automation doesn't make mistakes. <laughs> Yeah, but so but my point is is like if you keep, if you're able to keep the stuff up to date, it's easy to know exactly where things are and and if the automation's handling it for you, like updating an asset with the right IP address, update or, or DNS name, asset tags, warranty information. So when I go, you know, if you're a system administrator, you go into the data center and you see two failed disks on a server, you scan that asset tag, pull it up in that box, call, you know, Dell, HP, whoever, get that, get those drives replaced, right? That's right there. And you don't need to go back to your desk, do research because it hasn't been updated. That was probably one of the biggest problems I had when I was in ops is like, great, now I got to go hunt down the warranty information on this, on these systems because the asset tag doesn't match the serial number because somewhat because uh, the server got swapped, but it inherited that asset tag associated with the warranty number, but someone didn't update it correctly. So that's always been fun. <laughs> of course, there's nothing more painful than realizing that it never been inserted into any of our content management. And then you have to go back out to the data center and you take pictures, then come back to your desk. And by then you're angry and you just go to lunch and call it a day. So Brandon, you've, you've got me hooked. I'm, I'm excited. I want to see more. I want to see how this could work in a closer to real life situation than, than an audio podcast. What do you got for me? Well, over the next month, I want you to watch out for content on some of these solutions. It'll be on the Destination Links YouTube channel and also watch out for resources on my GitHub page. I'm writing a couple integration scripts between specifically uh, Snipeit and uh, Netbox. So that should be coming here hopefully Mid-December, early January. It just depends on my work schedule, but that is definitely planned. And we'll be talking about it in the later episode this year, but 
there's a lot of changes coming to the show. Yep, a lot of exciting things, a lot of new content. We're finally going to kick off Pseudo Labs here in the next month or two. The first mini series, if you will, of, of Pseudo Labs is going to be based around a lot of these same tools that we talked about today. Brandon's doing a ton of work on those. I've seen some of the rough videos is looking really good. So we're going to get those polished up, get those ready to publish. And so yeah, keep your eye on the Destination Linux YouTube channel. Keep an eye on our Twitter feed. And we'll we'll post there as, as Brandon gets some of those scripts ready for, for digestion. So lots of great stuff coming. We're, we're going to end this, end this year with some great news as well. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. As always, your feedback is welcome. Head on over to pseudo.show slash discuss. If you'd like more of the Pseudo Show, you can find it over at pseudo.show and on social media at Pseudo Show Podcast. Catch more awesome content over our network partners, destinationlinux.network. Eric, anywhere else you'd like to send folks? Yeah, like I said, it's, it's not as easy as it looks, huh? <laughs> you can head on over to the Red Hat Enterprise Linux YouTube channel. We just resurrected that and are starting to publish new content out there from tech tips to the bi-weekly RHEL Present show that I'm a host of. You can join us live every other Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you, as always, you can follow me at ITGuyEric or on ITGuyEric.com. You can follow me on most social media at dbrandonjohnson or my website at open-tech.net and new content at destinationlinux.network. Remember, the Pseudo Show is your place for all things enterprise open source. Until next time. Mm-hmm.